Well, good morning again. If you brought a Bible, go ahead and open it to the book of 1 Kings, chapter 19, page 301 in your pew Bible. I don't think I say, I don't think I've ever actually said this. Those pew Bibles, if you don't have a Bible and you're visiting or you've been with us, take that with you. That's our gift to you. Uh, Those are there for you to use. Um, uh, if, If you need it to sort of like elevate your TV, maybe don't take it. Um, But if you are looking for uh, Scripture, please take one with you. Before I read this, uh, I just want to remind everybody, as we move into the summer, we always go through a series in in the Psalms, and then in August, which is sort of a new thing for Wallace, we take topics from the congregation. So if you have things that you have been thinking about, places in Scripture, topics in the culture, world, whatever, that you would like to have preached on— you can email that topic to Chris Perso or at info at wallacepca.org. Don't forget to do that. Uh, we think we draw the deadline for that uh, somewhere in June. But just wanted to keep that in front of you. And second, which is sort of pertinent to this series, um, <laughs> I can't believe I'm saying this, but we started a podcast. Um, and uh, Jamie Duguid and Reed Berger and I, um, I would say, the impetus of this is, is Jamie, and, uh, and you'll hear why in a second. Um, there's so much in this series that we're not going to get to and just can't for time's sake. And like a, like a scholar, soon to be PhD for sure, we want to leave a space to get to that good stuff. So where are you going to do that? You can't cram it all in sermons, even though you probably think that I do sometimes. Well, a podcast can do that. And so there's two real purposes for this podcast. One, um, to hit at different chapters and, and sections of, of, of the story of uh, Elijah and Elisha that we don't talk about, like Obadiah back in chapter 18. Um, but also, um, certainly for me and for those who preach, um, you really have to edit a ton of stuff. And I'm not the best at it, but I try. And there's so much stuff that I want to get to, and I, and I want to tell you all. And you're like, oh, we're good, thanks, right? But this, this offers a chance for us to sort of have a place to put that. Um, we were going to call this preacher's cut, as in like director's cut. But um, So it, it's nothing more than that. We just show up, we speak into this microphone, and here's some things that, that we uh, didn't get to that the text highlights. And maybe for you, as we get into this and we have to skip chapters, you're like, whoa, 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 whoa what about this? You know, what about the bears who maul the, the children? Go to the podcast. Um, so that's, and it's called Fourth Point, which Jamie came up with, which I think is brilliant. Most sermons have three points, but Ryan's always putting a fourth and a fifth point in there like today. And so we're just calling it Fourth Point as in like the extra stuff. Okay, enough about that. Look for that. Um, it's just something that we, um, if anything, we hope that it's something that is helpful and encouraging to you all as we go through this series. And, um, and that's enough about that. All right, let's turn our hearts to the reading of God's Word and give our attention to it, found in the book of 1 Kings chapter 19. And I'm going to read this whole chapter for us. Uh, Before I do that, the beginning here, uh, the background, uh, before I forget, it's important as we kind of just remember last week, um, this massive, massive story at Mount Carmel where God really just shows His power. We saw how how it's His grace to His people as well. Um, and how he demonstrates who the real God is. And chapter 18 ends with Elijah running out in front of King Ahab, and they're going to Jezreel. And it's this picture, at least from Elijah's perspective, if you think about it, that this is it. We, we sort of arrived, 
God has proven himself in this massive demonstration of power and by consuming the altars and Baal is not real and this is going to turn the hearts of God's people. And so we leave 18 with this idea that Elijah is running uh, to this new start almost where prophet and king will be together and lead God's people back to covenantal faithfulness. Let's begin reading what happens next in chapter 19, verse 1. Ahab told Jezebel, this is his wife, all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with a sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he rose and ran for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and he slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and he drank and he lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with a sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Let me pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us in 1 Kings, and we pray now that as we look at it, we pray that you would open our eyes and our ears by your Spirit, that we may see and hear things otherwise we could not, that we might change, that you might change us. Would you do this for your glory, for your name's sake, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. You might have heard the phrase, momentum is everything when you're starting something new. Maybe it's a new business that you set out to start. Maybe it's a new school year and you, know, you want to start on the right leg, we say sometimes. I think that's what we say. Um, maybe it's the spring cleaning initiative in your house. Momentum is everything, right? It's, it's, it's what gets it going and allows it to often get traction uh, and grow. Well, momentum might not be everything, but it's certainly important, and it's especially important in ministry and college ministry at that. And I'll speak from personal experience. When each fall semester, you're, you're kind of uh, restarting with the arrival of new freshmen after the graduation of seniors. Um, I can recall early on in my ministry on the college campus, um, I was just out of seminary and really excited about this particular fall, and we had started to get some momentum or traction on campus. We had a healthy group of freshmen, which is really important. Um, I was sort of figuring out this job for the first time, was still new to it. I had these two great interns uh, that just were clicking, and we were a team, and things seemed to be going well, and it felt like this was going to be the year. The year for what, you ask? Well, the year for what every new young pastor, uh, whether on campus or in a church or whatever, thinks the year that the ministry is going to explode, um, that, you know, we're just going to take over the campus or we're going to take over the city, right? This is what, whatever it is, it's going to be big. And that's kind of what we hope for. It doesn't matter. Bigger the better. To add to all these factors, heading into this fall, our annual fall conference was just a few weeks away. We had a lot of signups. We had a lot of signups. And a speaker that I knew would hit a home run and says, so just like all this was coming together. Fall conference comes and it goes. We had a, a, a record number of students for that fall for us. Everything was going according to plan. The weekend ends. We come back on Monday and I get a call from my intern thinking that all of this momentum is going to land itself in our ministry. And, you know, you only kind of get a couple of these opportunities to grab students because God's not sovereign. Uh, anyways. Um, the weekend ends, I get a call from my intern saying, you know, there's some problems with this group of freshmen. They, they, um, they didn't really have a great time on the retreat. Felt like the seniors were a little clicky, they said. Um, they didn't connect to any of the speakers for the seminars, and actually they really, really did not connect to the speaker. And they had some problems with what, what, what he said. And so anyways, they've just told me that they're kind of going to go and explore other ministries. And that's really the nail in the coffin for a new campus minister. Um, and so the intern's like, well, what do I do? Um, well, I was like, well, you tell them they can't go to other ministries. That's what you tell them. What am I paying you for? <laughs> uh, suffice it to say, momentum was gone, right? The fall semester did not begin as I thought it would. This would not be the year. Um, and I'm not going to lie, like, I was lost. Now, I didn't present that. You can't do that. But 
in my mind, I just thought, they're going to fire me. Um, I don't know what I'm doing. I feel like I'm doing the only things that I know how to do, and this just isn't working. What's the problem? And, you know, I felt like God was really doing something when I go back and revisit some of that experience in my life, and, and then nothing happened. And, and then as far as I could see, uh, there was just this, you know, regular group of people. And if I'm real honest, I felt like a failure. Now, this type of discouragement is, is common in ministry, if you've done it, done it at all, whether vocationally or not. But not just ministry. And I can go back to some of those things that I mentioned. You know, I, some of you, I know in your work, you've started businesses, you started things, and, and there were moments where it took off and you felt like this was going to be it, it was going to catch, and, and then it didn't. And maybe, uh, maybe it's two or three more years before we earn a profit. Maybe we go out of business and there's just that feeling of, of failure. Maybe it's marriage. You thought we were turning a corner. We, we've all been there and we were going to get over this thing and, and, and things were better, but actually you come to find out it's worse. Whatever the case may be, when the expectations that we have are not met, like this can really do a number on us. In fact, often depression begins to settle in and we are really in a place of despair about all of life, not just ministry, work, or family. It's one of those uh, periods in life, Ada would, would argue that the, the, one of the toughest periods in life is that transition after college, um, where you have all this community and all these things going on, but then you leave and you feel like it's just going to keep springboarding. And, and those first couple of years are hard. And the community is gone. You're in a job and all the expectations that you had, just not sort of reaching what you thought it was going to be. And you, and you were sure, you were sure that God had laid this, the, the steps for you to get there. Why is this happening? Well, we could keep going. As we looked at, before we read 19, the sort of, as we come out of 18, it's sort of this high, if you will, that Elijah is on, and he is thinking that all is going to be new. Everything's going to change. Things are going to be different, and it doesn't happen. And because of that, Elijah, for lack of a better phrase, finds himself in chapter 19, feeling like a failure. I mean, just witness one of the most remarkable instances of God's power next to perhaps maybe the Red Sea. Why wouldn't this be the year <laughs> that things really begin to happen? And this sends him in the direction of despair. So what does God do for Elijah here? And that's what we're going to look at. Much ink is spilled trying to actually figure out Elijah's motives, why he is in the state of despair that he's in. This morning, though, I really want us to focus on what God does for Elijah and what I would argue he does for you as well in the midst of the confusion at the least or in the places of despair that you find yourself because whether it's your expectations for the way life is supposed to turn out or just the events are too much, he is there to comfort his people. And just as he comforts Elijah in the ways that we'll look at, I would submit to you that he comforts you the very same way, primarily by drawing near to you and reminding you 
of his presence. There are four things here, one point, the comfort of God, but the four things that we see out of this text with our time um, that I, I want to highlight because I want you to remember these things as Christians. Um, one, we see that God does not scold Elijah in this situation. He's actually very gentle with him. We see that God draws near to Elijah, as we'll look at sort of the bulk of, of the story. He doesn't leave him. We also see that God continues to involve Elijah in his work, in his kingdom. And then we'll also see how God discloses his plans, his future plans to Elijah to give him hope and peace. It's pretty remarkable. So with, let's, let's just run through this and look at this for the time that we have. Um, if we begin here in verse 1, as we note uh, the story of, uh, of Ahab coming to tell Jezebel all that Elijah had done, Elijah receives this message and he sees uh, that the hearts of Ahab and Jezebel have not changed, and he takes off for Beersheba to, in Judah, which is about 100 miles south of Jezreel. Um, but actually, Elijah keeps going. Um, you'll note there also, I said seas. There's some discussion about whether it's afraid or seas. I take seas, but we can talk about that maybe on the podcast. But just to get an idea for distance, and distance is kind of important as we think through this account um, with where he's going, right? If, if Jezreel is Philadelphia, and we're, we're pretty sure, we're pretty familiar with where that is, Beersheba would be Washington, D.C., but then Elijah, it says, keeps going, and he makes it to Raleigh, North Carolina. And this is where he is, and I believe it's safe to say that at this point, that's, that, that Elijah's plans for Israel, as we get here, it's safe to say that they're not matching up with what God is not doing what, what, what he is expecting. They're not matching up with what is really happening. And at this point, um, it really feels the, the lowest of lows for him as he asks the Lord to take his life. Uh, you notice that there in verse 4. And, um, you know, I don't know that I've gone that far yet, but at least I understand the confusion and the despair of what he must be experiencing based on his expectations for what he had hoped had happened and, um, you know, just to kind of revisit again, I think it's, it's important to, to, to think through this. You know, what did he actually do? He prayed, um, for the, he prayed to the Lord, right, um, that he would do this thing, and the Lord did it. And he witnessed God's promises to him uh, by the blessing of rain. And there wasn't any really other indication that, that would lead him to think that this isn't what God was doing, but now as he's hearing this report, as we enter verse 19, all that it's done is it sort of set him on edge and, and it is at, getting him to ask the question, you know, why is this happening? What are you doing? And it's here where we enter into that confusion for a moment. We have all prayed. We have all um, earnestly, I might even say, we've all prayed. And we've all had moments where it seems like God is actually, you know, in the midst of answering these prayer requests, he always answers them. But when I say that, I mean that maybe he's answering them in the way that we want him to answer them. But then something happens, and it almost just sort of goes away, as if it was never even there to begin with. And I want to I say this before we move on. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you have experienced this confusion and what this passage does, and I want you to hear this, is it really validates that confusion. When you become a Christian, you do not get a manual that reads God's reasons and answers for all things and for all time and space. 
And you certainly don't get a manual that reads God's reasons and answers for all things for your neighbor or your friend or family member so that you can go and explain all those things to them. Now, following Jesus is often a God, I trust you, but I do not know what you're doing type of experience. And off the bat, I want to to stay here and and show you that this this is the validation of that human experience from God himself. Because what is it actually that God does in the midst of his lowest, Elijah's lowest, lowest mark? Look at it there. I think it's verse five. He feeds him. He sends him an angel and he brings him food and he feeds him. And so if you're at a place where you're wondering, you know, is this confusion? Are the things that are happening in my life as they're not working out the way that I thought? Am I doing something wrong? Or is is God just, what is he doing? Is he there? I want you to sit here. I don't want you to see that, that actually, you know, he's validating the experience. He's not scolding Elijah. He's not saying, Elijah, you fool, where's your faith? He's feeding him. He's being patient with him. He's being gentle. As I was reading through this, you can't help but jump to Matthew eleven twenty eight 28, when Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is not saying that God never has any problems with us or that he never has any problems with our behavior, our attitudes. Grace always meets us where we are, but it never keeps us where we are, as we will say, it changes us. But I bring that verse to our attention because one, the God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament. So let's start there. Two, how Jesus deals with you when he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, you will find rest for your souls, is the same way God deals with Elijah here. He is being extremely gentle to him. And maybe the point is not so much look at what God will do as much as it is telling us who God is and that his MO, as it were, is not to point fingers at you and to tell you why you're a failure and to, to keep, you know, keep you on that guilt trip that we are so good at putting ourselves on. Instead, it's actually to draw near to you, to get closer to you in these moments. That's his point. And that's really the next thing we see here, him doing for Elijah, is he draws near to him. And this is the whole point of bringing him to Mount Horeb. All right, so you'll notice that in verse 7 to 8, the angel of the Lord came again a second time and fed him. And he arose and ate and drank. And he went in that strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights uh, to, 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 to Horeb, the mountain of God. And at this point, Elijah is no longer running away from God. uh, Rather, God is calling him somewhere. As we see the provisions for him and and, and the journey that it will take him on. Also at this point, it's important to recognize in the background, especially if you're that first audience uh, that, that, that was receiving this, who would be exiles in Babylon, you're hearing a lot of Moses in this account. Um, intentionally, the writer is, is paralleling uh, the life of Elijah and Moses. Uh, just a couple of things. Both were um, sent and met God on mountains. Um, Israel worshiped the golden calf under Moses. Israel right now is worshiping Baal under Elijah. 
God provided for Moses and Israel in the wilderness for 40 years, and he now provides for Elijah to carry him on a journey for 40 days. Exceptionally unique, God would pass by them both on the mountains that he calls them. They both would be hidden from God's presence and both would avoid looking at God. Also, and what's most interesting to me, is both Moses and Elijah asked to die because of the toll of their callings and the callings that they had on them. Remember that the next time you are considering a career move into vocational ministry. And so as we arrive here at Mount Horeb in verse 9, there he came to a cave and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, what are you doing, Elijah? First, God draws near what with a question. It's always interesting to me when God asks his people questions like this. You might think of Genesis 3, and that's what came to mind for me when when Adam and Eve take the fruit and they clearly know something is wrong. They They have disobeyed God and they go and they hide. But what does the text say? As God was looking for them in the garden, he he cries out, where are you? And we all know that, you know, God, it's not that God doesn't know where they are. Um, He wouldn't be God. Rather, it's a rhetorical question meant for the person uh, being asked to sort of stop and to reflect uh, on why you're hiding, why are you covering up? But the question assumes closeness. It assumes intimacy. And that's, that's the real point here. And that's the feel here as well when we get to Mount Horeb. Elijah, why are you here? I'm not pointing the finger. I want you to do business with you. Why are you here? And so, so he, he, he speaks, right? And there's, a, there's, there, there's another sermon for another day on, on this, but I have been very jealous or zealous uh, would be another way for that for the Lord, the God of hosts. And, he, and all the things that he lists are sort of true, right? The people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, not all of them. Uh, they've thrown down your altars. Um, they've killed your prophets with a sword. And I, even I only, you're not the only one, but he feels like he is, am left and they seek my life and they, to take it away. To which God says to him, go out now and stand on the mount before the Lord. And, I'm, and before I read this, I just want to come back to the, this, this other um, aspect of this point. This is also God's response. He's been feeding him. He's been meeting him, drawing near to him. And now his response here isn't to engage him on these questions. And it isn't even to engage him, as, as some would say, on these half-truths. What he's about to do is give him the closest amount of his presence that he can. There's a lot here that, that, that is sort of, I wouldn't say theatrical, but it definitely grabs our attention and it should. But don't miss the bigger picture. Come out and stand before the Lord and behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and it broke into pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind and the same thing happens with the earthquake and the same thing happens with the fire, but the Lord was not in these things. And there's a couple of reasons why this might be the case. And one of those is, is, is just, <clears throat> you know, as we've already studied, a lot of the gods in the region were associated with nature. And so maybe there's a point here where I want to make sure that we're not confusing the God of the Bible with the God of the wind, fire, all of these things. But it's in this whisper that, that, that everything begins to change. Notice, though, as well, God's not in the little whisper, according to the text, but it's the whisper where Elijah heard it and he wrapped his face in his cloak and he went out and he stood at the entrance of the cave. It is interesting to note, going back to God's kindness, that Elijah doesn't even listen to God first. 
If you notice, he asks him to come out and stand before him. He's like, no, I'm fine. I'm going to stay in the cave. And God comes and he does this thing. And finally, in that whisper, that's what draws him out. God's presence as he moves towards Elijah is creating all the power of the wind and the earthquake and the fire. But the writer wants us to make sure we know not only is that not, the Lord is not in those things, but here's where the Lord is found. It's in a whisper, it's in a thin silence. Why would the writer want to triple down on this point? There really isn't agreement about what's going on here, to be honest. But a couple of observations I think we all could agree on. As we mentioned earlier, there's the issue with other gods, of course. But I think one of the major things is, and this was noted by um, Jamie and Reed in our time of discussing this, so much of Elijah's ministry has been shaped by what we might call the theatrics of God, the big things, right? The Mount Carmel things, the things that, that, that we really have in mind when we say this is going to be the year where this, this building is just going to flood with people. We're just going to, we're going to take over the city or whatever it's going to be. And what he's trying to tell him is like, that is not what changes people. What changes people is my word. And what's interesting about this text is, is, is that all these things that are happening, the point of the whisper is that God is close enough to him for him to hear this, which is what draws him out. And this is how God chooses to comfort him. I can't go on too much in this point here, but we, we might not believe this, but the Bible is adamant that the miracles and the signs and the wonders uh, that, that God does at times, they do not change people. And I would like to argue that, but the Bible clearly says this is the case. <laughs> so I'm going to listen. Rather, what changes people is hearing the word of God because the word of God means that there's intimacy there. You're present with him. He's close. You can think of Luke 16, the rich man and Lazarus, where the rich man go, goes to hell, as it were, or goes, you know, dies and goes into the afterlife, and he's asking Abraham to send Lazarus to come give him some, some water, but he won't. He can't get in there. And then the, the rich man says, well, will you send him to go visit my sons, that they'll repent and believe. And here's what is said. Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, this is the rich man, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. There, there is something about what the Bible, what Scripture is teaching us in, in all these places that connects back to our text of what the writer is saying. He's not in the earthquake. He's not in the fire. He's not in the wind. Although his presence causes those things, instead, Elijah, I am near to you. I am right with you, so close that you can hear my whisper. And this is what moves Elijah from the back of the cave to actually come out, cover his face so he doesn't see God and stand before him. And he is confronted with the reality that God has not left him. God has actually gone out of his way, we might say, to show him this. You know, only two other people in Scripture 
before Jesus appears, get to actually experience this. So coupled with this closeness then, as we move on, God then in verse 15 to 18 gives Elijah something to do. And we could say about this, um, that this is where he says, you know, I still have work for you to do in my kingdom. And it's not, it's not explicitly stated in the text, but what it's saying to him is, I am not done with you. <laughs> I'm not done with you. And I don't know about you, but when you feel like a failure, you feel like somebody's done with you. Spouse, God, friends. And so don't miss the encouragement here that God is giving his, his brother, his prophet here, right? Elijah, this man, in something to do in verse 15 to 18. He says to him, return and anoint three people, Hazael, the king over Syria, Jehu, the king over Israel, and Elisha to take your place as my prophet. Who are these people? And we'll get to more of them in future sermons, but just for the sake of of time, Hazel is a foreign pagan king who will actually come in as judgment on Israel. Uh, Jehu uh, will become king, and he will judge Jezreel, or Jezebel, excuse me, Ahab's wife. And then there's Elisha, the prophet, who will take Elijah's place. And without getting into all those stories, which we'll get to uh, later in the series, though, um, it, it, God is condescending to Elijah in so many ways. He's he, when you go back and you look at the things that Elijah is complaining about, he's complaining about justice. He's complaining about um, the worship of God and how Israel's not doing this. And, and in one sense, it's almost like God is allowing him to sort of shake his fists at God and in this sort of reinstating, although that's not even fair because it's not that Elijah has, has, has left God. He's just, in, he's just in despair. The very jobs that he gives him to do are jobs that reinforce the promise that, no, 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 no I will judge. No, 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 my promises are the ones that come true. No, 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 I am still in control here. My story, my kingdom, my plans and purposes, nothing, nothing has come close to stomping them, though you think that you are lost. And just so you know, God says, I am preserving 7,000 faithful in Israel. (laughs) And this is the last thing. Right? God literally sort of pulls back the curtain. I don't know to anybody else that he does this for. He, he basically shows them, like, this is what's going on in my hidden will that you, have, you don't deserve to know. There's no reason for you to know, but I'm going to tell you because that's the kind of God that I am. I want to give you this peace. I want to give you this comfort. But you're not the only one here. I'm actually preserving 7,000 faithful people who will not bow to Baal. For most of our lives, right, the kindest thing that God can do is remind us in these moments that what? You are not God. You are not God, Elijah. This is not your covenant. This is my covenant. These are not your promises to keep. These are my promises to keep. You are not holy. I am holy. I will handle this. And in those moments where God reminds us that we are not God, He does so in order to remove perhaps the the misplaced zeal that we can have at times in our lives in order to comfort us and remind us that he is the God who keeps his promises. And he calls us to trust him in the midst of that. And that's his comfort for 
Elijah. God is saying to him, look, I'm not scolding you. I'm going to be gentle to you. I'm going to speak to you. I'm going to whisper to you. He's drawing near to Elijah. He doesn't, he doesn't remove himself from him. He continues to use him in the work of his kingdom to bring justice and mercy according to his law. And finally, he pulls back that curtain. And in this 7,000 in Israel, right, the, the, the remnant is what this is. Elijah gets a part of it, gets a part of, he's a part of the promises, but what's also hiding in that 7,000, right? This is exactly where Jesus will come from. And so while Elijah, in part, sort of uh, gets this promise, right, we get it in full. We get it in full. Jesus, the fulfillment of God's promises, is what, is, 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 is what we see Though Elijah can't see it, God doesn't pull back the curtain for us, actually he tears it down, to be honest. And this moves to just the one point of application as we land this plane here. Um, you know, in all these ways that God comforts Elijah and the way that we can be comforted too in the same way as God draws near to us and the way that he uses us in his kingdom, the way that he, he delivers on his promises. So much of what Elijah is experiencing is caused by his desire for God to enter his own story to enter his own plans and his own kingdom, and instead of trying to enter God's story and God's plans and his kingdom. And, and, and that might be the place where we find the most comfort this morning, is to be able to say, hey, stop trying to get God to enter your plans, to enter your story, to enter your kingdom. Instead, spend your time trying to figure out how to enter his. With your expectations, give those up to the Lord. Take your zeal to prayer but, but see what he's doing here as he calms Elijah down and he brings him back into the story that he has been orchestrating from day one and will continue to end in the culmination of Jesus Christ. And as we stand here with this promise delivered to us, right, with, with, with the, the full curtain pulled back, as it were, right, we know how the story ends. And God is saying the same thing to us. Stop, stop trying to pull, pull me into the things and expectations that you want for your life. Come and be a part of the story that I am already writing if you're looking for comfort this morning. The ultimate comfort for Elijah is knowing that God is in control when he is not. And I would submit the same thing is true for you this morning as it is for me. And often it comes in the reminder that our confusion and our despair and our anger is in those things. That is often because we are trying so hard and we pray, right, and we do these Christian things. And all the while, without knowing it, we are really trying to get God to enter in and do the things that we want him to do. And here's the best part about this, and here's the best part of the story. God will not do that. I'm not saying that God doesn't answer prayer. Please don't hear that. He will not be a genie for you. He will not be an administrator for you. This is a holy God who is set over all things, his plans and his purposes and his kingdom. And dare I say, the idea of him inviting us to enter that story and be a part of it, we have no business, but he does. He does. And I can say this as I come back to the college campus, you know, a <laughs> um, lot of great things happened later on. Never, not, none of them in the, in the way that I expected. That's been the theme for ministry too. God is at work. It's one of the things we believe. And one of the reasons I'm thankful that he doesn't 
fit into our stories, but calls us to fit into his is because his story is so much bigger and his story is so much better because his story gives us Jesus. And that's your comfort this morning. That's what you have. And you don't need to go anywhere else, both to be comforted, but to know his promises for you, to know that he loves you, and to know that no matter what you're experiencing, he is not far away from you. He has drawn near. He has taken on flesh to come be and to dwell among us. <laughs> that salvation may be given to you, that we may what? Dwell with God in a new heavens and new earth. It's the same. We're all going to the same place for the same thing, that we may live together forever. What ways can we repent? Can we acknowledge that, that much of the anxiety and the stress that I'm experiencing is trying to get God to fit into my plans? And how can his promises to us be comfort to say, hey, come and be a part of my story? May that be grace for us to persevere. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Elijah, and we thank you for the, the realness of this story. Um, it takes a turn, and it's not what I was expecting. It isn't what Elijah was expecting, but in it we get to see your heart, and we get to see more of who you are as the God who draws near, as the God who comforts by his presence through his word, as the God who invites us into what you are doing. And whether we need to see that in the 7,000 that you preserved and, and ultimately see that in Jesus who comes to fulfill your promises and to remind us that you are good, that this is how you comfort your people, that you haven't left them, would you do that for us? Would you make that uh, uh, tangible in some ways, especially as we come to this table and to take in these elements that remind us just how much you have drawn near to us? We thank you. We love you. We ask that you be with us now as we go to your table. In Jesus' name, amen.